Psalm 23 will be our text today. This is uh, as regards our study on the theology and application of prayer, lesson number 10. Allow me to pray and then we'll read and continue this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your abundant grace, your providential blessings, your care for us, your love for us. Thank you for causing us to believe, granting us faith to believe, and help us to understand something more of of prayer and how to pray biblically. Pray for your glory and the good of your people. In Christ's name, amen. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Don Whitney, um, in his book, Praying the Bible, right here, Praying the Bible, said this, quote, one prayer does not a prayer life make repeated the very same way. Prayers without variety eventually become words without meaning. Jesus said that to pray this way is to pray in vain. The tragedy is that too often that's the way it is with our own prayers. We believe in prayer, but because we always say the same old things about the same old things, it seems as though all we do in prayer is simply heap up empty phrases. Praying about the same old things is normal. The problem is not that we pray about the same old things. Rather, it's the way we say the same old things about the same old things. End quote. And then Whitney, of course, um, as I've mentioned before, um, offers practical advice of praying God's word back to him. And we've seen something of that over the course of the week's uh, examples uh, in the Old Testament. And he provides a method that that will help really um, transform um, our prayer life. And it's mostly a focus on the Psalms, praying the Psalms. Uh, John Calvin um, described the Psalter as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. That is the various emotions that can arrest the soul um, from, the, from the heights of happiness and joy, you know, thanksgiving, adoration, to the most uh, dismal moments um, of despair. Even the feelings of being forsaken. I mean, this is what we read 
um, in the Psalms. But as we pointed out last time, nearly half of the Psalter is Davidic. And David was God's anointed king. He was God's chosen, anointed king. So he faced um, political and theological enemies that uh, we won't, for he was, uh, after all, the anointed one of God. He was God's Messiah, small m, lowercase m, anointed one. And the, the important hermeneutical point uh, that we focused on really the last two weeks is that uh, we're not God's anointed king. We don't share the same enemies in the same way um, as King David did. And we in no way share the same position or the place of God's advancing his kingdom and his uh, decreed will with regard to his redemption as David did. But even so, um, as we learned, um, the Psalms are ultimately about God's ultimate Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, Luke 24. Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So um, in the fullest sense, the Psalms can only be prayed by the one who was to come. For they all point to him. They all point towards him. So it's, it's only Jesus who came in the fullness of time, God's royal anointed one, the Christ, his Messiah, who can pray these prayers in their comprehensive sense, in their fullest sense. So the question then is, how can we pray these psalms? Answer, because we're in Christ. We're in Christ, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Last time we looked at the concept of intercession. Christ's intercession isn't prayer. Now, in John 17, he prayed the high priestly prayer, and that prayer, of course, has a residual effect as it was prayed by the eternal Son of God. Still being answered, of course. So Christ's intercession, his work of intercession, while he was on earth, is a work that he did. He did it perfectly. He did it sinlessly in order to redeem us. That's the work he did while he was on earth. And intercession is a work that he does in heaven as he ever lives to make intercession for us. Not to clear us of charges against us, as he did when he came to redeem us. For on the cross he said, it is, it is finished. But now, ever living to make intercession for us, is that he is representing us before the Father um, as righteous, as one of his own. So intercession as we learned, has to do with representation. And to rep represent is to represent. It's to present again. 
So that is to say, I'm no longer identified as being in the first Adam. Because I'm in Christ, I'm identified as being in the last Adam, the second Adam. I am therefore represented as being in Christ. You are represented in Christ. Therefore, as Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 16, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So again, Jesus isn't praying for us. I don't believe he's praying for us. He's interceding for us so we can pray. He intercedes for us. He represents us so we can pray. That's that's what it is to ask in Jesus' name. And that's important because God will not honor any intercession other than Christ's intercession. So our prayers of intercession are, are, are all, as always, an outworking of his work of intercession. He intercedes, therefore we can pray intercessory prayers on behalf of others. So it's really an extension of his, of his work of intercession. He represents us before the Father. We're in him, so um, we can pray, and we can pray boldly. So therefore, because we're in Christ, we're invited, really, to pray these prayers, the Psalms, after him, the one who's gone before us. Knowing that as we face trouble, he, he faced trouble of the worst kind. As, he, as we face temptation, he faced temptation in a way that we never will. Pain. He suffered pain that we never will. So we can pray in the steps of our Lord Jesus. And the Psalms will help us to do that, as Whitney points out, uh, more specifically and less boringly, (laughs) as he puts it. Now, before we move on, a word about interpreting the Bible versus praying the Bible. Whitney calls attention to this, telling us that correctly handling the Word of God, that is, correctly interpreting the Scripture, that is hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation, does not permit making the text say what we want it to say. Amen? The God-inspired meaning of every word, the God-inspired meaning of every verse means what God inspired it to mean. So there is none of this, um, what does it mean to me? Right? Okay. However, writes Whitney, that's not what we're doing here. And I quote, with what I'm advocating, our primary activity is prayer, not Bible intake. Bible reading is secondary in this process. Our focus is on God through prayer. Our glance is at the Bible. And we turn Godward and pray about every matter that occurs to us as we read. End quote. It's very important 
knowing the difference between interpreting the Bible and praying the Bible. And I think our, our church has a good hand. I think you all have a good handle on that so that we can go into this and, and really enjoy um, praying according to Scripture. So before we look at the method, and we're going to do that this morning, we're going to look at the method of praying Psalm 23. Um, let's take a quick look at the context. So I want to look at the context, and then, and then we'll look at, at how we can pray you know, in your own life, your own situation, circumstances, troubles, trials, temptations, so on, how we can pray the Scriptures uh, in a very, a very freeing way, if you will. But first, um, Charles Spurgeon reminds us of the significance of the location of this psalm in book, book one of the Psalter. Says Spurgeon, the 23rd psalm follows the 22nd, which is peculiarly the psalm of the cross. There are no green pastures, no still waters on the other side of the 22nd psalm. It is only after we have read, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, that we come to, the Lord is my shepherd. We must by experience know the value of blood shedding and see the sword awakened against the shepherd before we shall be able truly to know the sweetness of the good shepherd's care. End of quote. Spurgeon's right. The key to understanding this psalm is not to focus on the sheep, as many authors do. The focus is on the goodness of the shepherd. The goodness of the shepherd. Now, as is often the case in the Psalter, the name of God is affirmed in such a way as to remind the reader of God's covenant promise to to provide for and to protect his, his covenant people. We don't want to miss that. So God is is most often spoken of throughout the Psalms as deliverer, um, as king, and as an impersonal um, shield or or rock. This is what we find throughout the Psalms. But here, David says, the Lord, Yahweh, he's my shepherd. (laughs) He's my shepherd. So the God of Israel, that tells us, is also the God of each Israelite. And more importantly here, he's David's shepherd. So the metaphor of God as shepherd, it's very personal because a shepherd dwells with the flock 24-7. He's always there. Now, I'm going to provide for you um, a, a prayer chart. I follow this. I have one in my Bible at home, and uh, knowing on what day, which you know, to, to what's which psalms to pray through, it's very helpful. Yesterday happened to be the 22nd, and one of the readings was the 22nd Psalm, and here we are today on the 23rd. Providence, providence. So we'll we'll have those for you um, um, afterward. I think they're out in the foyer. Uh, but is you, if, you, if you begin to practice this, um, you, you'll understand that uh, in Hebrew poetry, we, we, we read a lot of repetition. 
There's a lot of repetition. Um, most often, there's a central thought placed in the middle of the psalm, and then there's a, a mirror effect that is provided, known as a chiastic structure. For instance, say you take five lines, top to bottom, one, two, three, four, five, and uh, line three is the main thought. And a chiasm shows us that, you know, uh, verse one and five reflect one another, moving towards the same thought, and two and four reflect one another, moving towards this same thought. So you can read the main thought and read backwards and then read forward from the middle point. And, and that's an example of a, of a chiasm. And right here in the middle of Psalm 23 is the statement, you are with me. Who's with him? The Lord, the shepherd. Okay, so let's, let, let's look at the context of this. And then we'll look at how to kind of practically pray it. In verse 2, David follows up the introduction of Yahweh as shepherd uh, with his care uh, for the people. His people. And notice he draws the scenery here. And uh, notice he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, green pastures are essential for the well-being of the sheep. So long as pastures remain green, the shepherd need not move his flock and risk them. You know, any move to a new location, um, you, you, you risk the flock to some degree. There's always danger, potential danger. So there's green pastures, there's still water. And then verse 3 um, against the backdrop of, of green pastures, ample water, and safety, David speaks of the Lord's spiritual provision. First part of verse 3. He restores my soul. The Lord is my shepherd. This is how he leads me. He guides me. He restores my soul. So just as uh, the sheep in God's green pasture finds rest, provision, Every need is met, and so too here David understands he must be led in the right way, to the right place. And then notice, the second half of verse 3, he leads me, notice, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So my shepherd, Yahweh, God Almighty, Leads me into green pastures, still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, uh, literal sheep have, have no moral standard in life. Amen. They don't face difficult choices between right and wrong. How to live. How to speak. How to respond. Sheep just follow their shepherd without question. They eat, and they sleep, and they follow. But they do have a tendency to wander. There is that tendency for them to, to stray and become lost if the shepherd's not keeping watch. So obviously life is much more complicated for us as the sheep of his flock, 
We not only need to be led to the place of rest and contentment, refreshment, uh, we also realize we have to conduct ourselves in the right way as we're being led. So David's focus is upon the Lord and his righteousness. He leads me, he guides me, he protects me. And then in verse 4, if we think about life, there's a disturbing image. As we walk through life, as we're being led by our shepherd into green pastures, okay? So along the path, there's green pastures, there's ample waters. He's leading us through this place. And then on the other side of the path, if you will, there's, there's a dreadful place. Notice, even though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So if the green pasture is located on one side, on the right path, or of the right path, on the other side, there's a shadowy valley. In the images of a, a, a ravine, so if you go down into the ravine, into a gully, the, the sun doesn't hit it in a way that provides light, so there's always this shadow being cast in the gully, in the valley. Long shadows. And here they represent the shadow of death. And that's all that can affect those that are gods is just the shadow of death not death itself. So the, the valley is a place of fear. It's a place of uncertainty, kind of a place where you might lose your bearings, especially sheep. They become startled. You lose your bearings. You're afraid. All, all sense of direction and perspective is just lost. That's the idea. And, and yet, when, when God takes us through deep and dark ravines, he doesn't leave us there. There will be deep and dark ravines, but he will not abandon his sheep. David knows this. We may not know where we're going. We may not know how long the journey will be, but the good shepherd watches over me. That's the idea. So because the Lord is our shepherd, we know that we will at some point come up and out of the shadowy ravine back to green pastures, back to refreshing waters, and so on. So he guides us, he leads us because he is with us. Even when it seems dark and terrifying and sometimes hopeless. He's there, he will not leave us. Verses 5 and 6, the second and final section of the psalm, uh, the scene shifts, notice, um, from the protection of our shepherd, his faithful leading and guiding through the valleys and the shadows. And we see an even more personal um, and intimate scene as he moves on. And that is eating. And in the ancient world, um, to eat at table with someone was to form a bond with them. Form a bond. And here he prepares a table. And this is why covenants were ratified with a fellowship meal. You have a covenant and a meal that followed. And this is the reason, by the way, that the Pharisees were, were so appalled with Jesus dining with sinners. This is what they would have in their mind. 
Verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Notice the Lord is the host. Yahweh, he's host. We're the guest of honor at his table. David says, look, nothing is lacking. My cup overflows. That's a picture of of God providing the best of all things for his own. You have green pastures, you have still waters, you have cups overflowing. And notice he even anoints the, the head of the honored guest with olive oil, a ritual that in which the host would, would welcome his guests into the banquet hall, anoint their head with olive oil. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So God's goodness, his mercy is on display in the covenant that he's made with sinners. In Christ, we understand the fullness of this makes a a covenant with with sinners, promising to redeem them, guard them, guide them, protect them, and provide an everlasting dwelling with him. So this far exceeds David and his life. We see Christ here, as as we will see in just a moment, that, that Christ is the fulfillment of this, of course. So this is greatly comforting. The presence of the Lord here at the table, and he experiences God's goodness and mercy firsthand. Now, David, referring to to Yahweh as my shepherd, we're reminded that Jesus, when he came, he said, he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. John 10. We learn the identity of the shepherd that leads his people, the green pastures. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So everything declared of the shepherd in Psalm 23 is is fulfilled in the life, death, resurrection, the victory of Jesus Christ who is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. So, Jesus is your shepherd. Jesus is my shepherd because I know him through faith. He knows me intimately. And I can be certain that he's redeemed me from my sins. True darkness. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, and in Revelation chapters 19, verses 6 through 17, Nine, we see the same banquet scene. What you just read, what we read in Psalm 23, in in the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a banquet scene. The great supper of the Lamb. The unity of God's people together sharing in this. Through the finished work of the great shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very quick exposition of that, of that psalm. Okay, so with that in our mind, so we, we want to rightly interpret the scripture. Now I want to move to the method 
of prayer. And I'm just going to read directly from the book. Reading from the book. Now, we're going to see what praying through a psalm looks like. Let's use the 23rd psalm as an example. And let's say that, as is probably true in real life, you read your Bible first. Perhaps you read in Matthew or in Hebrews, and and then you turn to prayer. You decide to pray through a psalm. You choose Psalm 23. You read the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. And you pray something like this. Lord, I thank you that you are my shepherd. You're a good shepherd. You've shepherded me all, you have shepherded me all my life. And, and great shepherd, please shepherd my family today. Guard them from the ways of this world. Guide them into the ways of God. Lead them not, Lord, into temptation. Deliver them from evil. O oh, shepherd, I pray for my children. Cause them to be your sheep. May they love you as their shepherd, as I do. And Lord, please shepherd me in the decision that's before me about my future. Do I make that move? Do I make that change or not? I also pray for our under-shepherds at the church. Please shepherd them as they shepherd us. You, you pray that one? That's a good one to pray. It's all good. And you continue praying anything else that comes to mind as you consider the words, the Lord is my shepherd. And then when nothing else comes to mind, you go to the next line. I shall not want. And perhaps you pray, Lord, I thank you that I've never really been in want. I haven't missed too many meals. All that I am and all that I have has come from you. But I know it pleases you that I bring my desires to you. So would you provide the finances that we need for those bills, for school, for that car, or whatever? Maybe you know someone who is in want, and you pray for God's provision for him or her. Or you remember some of your persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, and you pray for their concerns. After you've finished, you look at the next verse. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And frankly, when you read the words lie down, maybe what comes to mind for you is simply, Lord, I would be grateful if you'd make it possible for me to lie down today and take a nap. Especially if you're a mother with two, three, four, five kids. Footnote, there's a footnote here. Although this verse has absolutely nothing to do with taking naps, the distinction has been made between the validity of praying the scriptures and interpreting the scriptures, which must always be done rightly. End quote. Okay, we're clear on that? I always get some whiner. Not, not from in here, but someone may listen and then I might get an email. We need to interpret the Bible like this. Well, you just missed the whole point of this. So the distinction has been made. So his point, if you read through this, remember we're praying the Bible. 
You're an exhausted mom. Lord, if it's possible that I could just take a nap. 45 minutes. Whatever. Pray it. That's the point. Possibly the term green pastures makes you think of the feeding of God's flock in the green pastures of his word. And it prompts you to pray for a Bible teaching ministry you lead or for a teacher or pastor who feeds you with the word of God. When was the last time you did that, he asks. Maybe you've never done that, but praying through this psalm caused you to do so. Next, you read, he leads me beside still waters. And maybe you begin to plead, yes, Lord, do lead me in that decision I have to make about my future. I want to do what you want, oh, Lord, but I do not know what that is. Please lead me into your will in this matter and lead me beside still waters in this. Please quiet the anxious waters in my soul about this situation. Let me experience your peace. May the turbulence in my life be stilled by trust in you and your sovereignty over all things and over all people. Following that, you read these words from verse 3. He restores my soul. That prompts you to pray along the lines of, My shepherd, I come to you so spiritually dry today. Please restore my soul. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and I pray you will restore the soul of that person from work, school, or down the street with whom I'm hoping to share the gospel. Please restore his soul from darkness to light, from death to life. You can continue praying in this way until either one, you run out of time, or two, you run out of psalm. And if you run out of psalm, before you run out of time, you simply turn the page and go to another psalm. Very practical. By doing so, you never run out of anything to say, and best of all, you never again say the same old things about the same old things. So basically, what you're doing is taking words that originated in the heart and mind of God and circulating them through your heart and mind back to God. By this means, his words become the wings of your prayers. End of quote. In part of the psalm where it says, he restores my soul, the writer continues, I said that one of the things this verse might prompt you to pray, pray for is the salvation of a person with whom you're trying to share the gospel, to pray that God would restore that person's soul from darkness to light, from death to life. Now, if I were to preach on Psalm 23 and say this verse is about evangelism, about God restoring the souls of those in spiritual darkness, I would be sinning. That verse is not about evangelism, and I know it. It's about a believer's soul being restored in the joy of God's salvation. Were I to declare to others that God's word here means one thing, when I know it means another, would be at best to misuse the text. We never have the right to claim that the Bible says something it does not. But if while you are praying through Psalm 23.3, your non-Christian friend comes to mind, and you use the language of this verse to say, Lord, restore my friend's soul, 
restore him from darkness to light, from death to life, that's fine. This isn't reading something into the text. It's merely using the language of the text to speak to God about what has come into your mind. So again, simply turn every thought Godward as you read the passage. At some points, you will pray exactly what the text is about. As when you pray, Lord, restore my soul to the joy of your salvation. At other times, you'll use biblical language to pray thoughts unrelated to the text that come to you while reading the text, as in, Lord, restore my non-Christian friend's soul from death to life. End quote. We see this? It's very helpful. I started doing this um, maybe about a year ago, whenever I read this book. Actually, I listened to the book on, on CD. I made a trip to L.A., listened to half of it on the way up, half of it on the way back, and um, printed out one of these, and I stuck it in my Bible next to my chair, the house, and do I do, because typically there's, there's five psalms a day on the chart. Usually I don't make it through five a day. Sometimes I do, sometimes on a Saturday I do, but, but not always, but, but that's not really the point. The point is just to guide, like uh, yesterday, okay, my wife's out of town. So I sat there and I prayed Psalm 22, 52, 82, 112, and 142. Sometimes I'll read the entire psalm, as I did Psalm 23, with an understanding of what it originally means, and then go back and then pray through it. Makes sense? It's very helpful, very helpful. And um, I have the Anne uh, in the foyer. Info book, which is in the foyer. I like foyer. I like to say foyer. Instead of lobby. It sounds better. So they're in the foyer at the information booth. In the foyer. So you can pick one up. You can stick it in your Bible. And I'll do a couple more of these in the next coming weeks. One of which I want to pray or look at is Psalm 88, which is really a lesson in how to pray as your prayers seem to be unanswered or to go unanswered it's really dark psalm so which is is helpful amen father we do thank you for the gift of prayer help us we pray to pray more effectively more biblically and if this might be used as a tool to do so um, we thank you for it and and for the author and the many men out there and women that you have um, gifted us with to, to write Such helpful things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.